And I invite you to open your copies of God's Word uh, once again to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be beginning in verses, uh, verse 22 and continuing to verse 24 this morning. And in doing so, we've uh, now left the walking section of Ephesians, and now we come to what is uh, sometimes known as the household code section of Ephesians. Speaking of the principles that govern various relationships of life. So Paul in these uh, next uh, few sections is going to cover um, three main fundamental relationships. The relationship between a husband and a wife, between parents and their children, and between uh, employer and employee. So we see that uh, today... In this household code, we move from the general to the specific. So far in the walking section, we had uh, considered general principles, but now we move on to specific applications. Paul is going to single out and speak directly to wives, husbands, children, fathers, bond servants, and masters. And once again, this is, uh, again, Paul is progressing us to increasing and increasing calls to holiness. Uh, Because if you think about it, it's always more difficult to obey a specific command than a general command. Uh, There is a Peanuts comic strip where Linus said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. And similarly, similarly, it's as we get to, into the particulars that we will be challenged to obey what the scripture teaches. But that's also why uh, these relationships of marriage, parenting, and work uh, can be such powerful tools in the hands of God for our own sanctification. Because these relationships constantly stretch us to the point where we fail and we sin and we have to confess our sin to the Lord and to each other, and to grow in holiness. But another reason why these particular commands are more challenging than the general commands is that these three basic relationships comprise almost the whole of our waking life. In a sermon on this passage, Sinclair Ferguson said that once you have spent your time at home with your family, And once you have spent your time at work with your employer and spent a few hours every night asleep, there is precious little time left. Therefore, we find that uh, these commands, in a sense, follow us every day, every hour, day after day, and continually place upon us a call uh, to a high standard of Christian living. And so we come this morning to uh, the relationship between the husband and the wife, and specifically what Paul has to say to the wives. And before we do come under uh, God's word read and then preached, let's once again ask uh, for his help and blessing. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you 
are the creator and the redeemer, that you are God, and we are your creatures, and therefore, Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts to obey all that you have in your word, for you have all the authority to command your creatures, and you are also a God who is good and created uh, the world good, created marriage good, and it is uh, good when we um, when we live out our life according to the way in which you have intended. And therefore, Lord, we ask that you would give us uh, open and receptive hearts, that you would open our ears and our eyes to behold uh, these things from your law, that they would be sweeter than honey to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's holy and inspired and infallible word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Amen. So far, God's word. Well, as we come to these verses, we have to realize that we are walking into a contemporary minefield. There are dozens of uh, different subtle and deadly traps that have been smuggled in from our culture and hidden below the surface underground as we make our way through these words of the Apostle Paul. There is not only the minefield of modern feminism, which would seek to liberate women from the so-called oppression of biblical gender roles in marriage in favor of strict egalitarianism. There is also the minefield on the other side of uh, so-called hyper-headship and male authoritarianism, which treats the wife more like a child and a partner with equal intelligence, dignity, and worth. When we wander into any of these minefields and try to build our marriages upon any one of these mines, our marriage blows up. The pristine and peaceful fields of marriage turn into an ugly battle zone, and the injuries, though spiritual and emotional, are no less painful. But even talking about biblical submission in this highly charged environment can often trigger negative reactions by those who have been unwittingly influenced by the former or those who have been who have experienced the painful fruit of the latter. And so that temptation as we study these verses is to cross over them quickly and to not fully explore them. Yet what I want us to do today is to commit to taking every step firmly planted on the word of God, and then if we do that, to not be afraid to go wherever the scripture leads, and to trust that whatever the Bible says is good and right, and we can fully rest our weight on it and build our marriages upon it. So with that introduction, let's 
take the first step, shall we? We see that Paul first gives us the command in verse 22. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the first thing I want you to notice is how gently Paul introduces this command. You might not notice it in your English translations, but there's actually a word missing in this verse in the Greek, and it's the word submit. Actually, in the Greek, this verse or this uh, word submit is supplied from verse 21. So in verse 21, Paul says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then in verse uh, 22, he simply says, wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. We see the same thing in verse 24. Paul says, therefore, just as the church is subject or submitted to Christ. And again, that's not controversial. And then he adds, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. We see that Paul could have used the word submit explicitly, and in fact he does so in the parallel passage in Colossians 3.18, as well as Titus 2.5. We see that Peter also uses the word explicitly in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. We also know that Paul is certainly not shy about saying controversial things, especially in the face of opposition. Paul indeed has every right to use that word when he commands wives to be submissive to their husbands in the Lord. But I think it's interesting here that Paul shows a certain tact and sensitivity and gentleness in not drawing attention to the word and rather making it implicit. So he says something like this. Everyone needs to submit to one another in the relationships of life where submission is called for. Wives to your own husbands. Then he goes on and then he says, And therefore, as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives to their own husbands. It's a reminder that biblical submission is to be won over willingly and not forced upon. So we come now to the command itself. And I want you to notice uh, two things about this command uh, by way of comparison and contrast with the other two sections, uh, the other two relationships between parents and their children and employers and their employees. We're going to see in this uh, household code section of Ephesians that there are similar commands given to wives, children, and employees as those who occupy the subordinate position in each of those relationships. However, we also see that there are differences between the commands, and I think those differences are indeed very significant. So first we see that wives are called to submit to their husbands, whereas children and bond servants are called to obey their parents and masters. And second, wives and employees are called to submit or obey to their husbands and, employee, and employers as to the Lord, but children are called to obey their parents in the Lord. So I want us now to consider these 
uh, two um, differences that Paul uh, draws our attention to in this section. So the first thing we see that's unique to wives is that wives are called to submit, whereas children and bond servants are called to obey. Now the word for submit is derived from two Greek words, which means something like uh, to be under order. To obey, on the other hand, is uh, derived from two Greek words, which mean something like to be under hearing. And the significance of this, I believe, is that children and bond servants are expected to be ordered around and told what to do by the very nature of that relationship. But wives, although still under the authority of their husbands, enjoy a much more dignified relationship to their husbands. The submission of wives to their husbands is much more all-encompassing and organic and has more to do with a posture of yielding and serving rather than simply obeying verbal commands. At the same time, we also have to acknowledge that this doesn't mean that wives won't obey their husbands. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as also Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do, not, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So one way for submission to work out is through obedience, but submission is also much more than simple, slavish obedience. But next, the second difference that we see is that wives and employees are called to submit or to obey as to the Lord, whereas children are called to obey their parents in the Lord. Now, why is this detail significant well first we understand we need to understand what it means to submit to your husbands as to the lord and there are at least two possible meanings for what it means to submit as to the lord first it could mean to submit to your husbands in the same manner in which you submit to the lord with equal devotion and care and in fact, that's essentially the idea that you find in verse 24, where Paul says, therefore, just as, or in the same manner that the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. It's possible that Paul is simply repeating himself in verse 24, and uh, when he says that wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. However, it could also mean that uh, you are to submit to your husbands as a way of ultimately submitting to the Lord so that your chief aim is to please Christ. And I believe it's that second meaning which is intended here in verse 22. And the reason I believe this is that uh, this is the same way that this expression is used in uh, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8, in that section on the employer-employee relationship. 
Because there Paul is exhorting bond servants to obey their masters as to Christ, and then he explains more fully what it means. So he says, beginning in verse 5, he says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good he does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So whereas children are called to obey their parents as their parents, like children always have from the beginning of the world, but now they're called to do so in the Lord, the wife and the uh, employee are now called to submit to their husbands or to obey their earthly masters as to the Lord and not to men. In other words, there is a way in which Christ comes in and he transforms the relationship of marriage and also the relationship between employee and employer. And he makes their service an act of devotion to him. It's as if a new president came to your company and he said, I want you to keep working for your old bosses, but I want you to do that for me, regardless of what you think of your boss. I will deal with them if they have done anything wrong, but you listen to me by listening to your bosses. And thus biblical submission, we see, is an evangelical duty it's uh, it's not something that was abrogated or ended by Christ's coming but it actually uh, comes to us in its greatest expression only because of Christ's coming uh, so it would perhaps be good at this point to define what biblical submission is and what it is not Well, remember what the word submission means. The word to submit literally means to be under order. In essence, what this is saying is that there is a divinely appointed ordering of creation so that some people are placed in positions of authority and some people are placed in positions under authority. And to submit is to put yourself under this divinely appointed order. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, I have often said that we must sharply distinguish between these two, the office and the person. The man who is called Hans or Martin is a man quite different from the one who is called a lector or doctor or preacher. Here we have two different persons in one man. The one is that which we are created and born, according to which we are all alike man or woman or child, young or old. But once we are born, God adorns and dresses you up as another person. He makes you a child and me a father, one a master and another a servant, one a prince and another a citizen. So a basic definition of biblical submission might be this. Biblical submission is the voluntary 
accepting or yielding of one's will to the will of the one placed in authority over you by God out of reverence to God. But it might be easier at this point to consider what biblical submission is by considering what biblical submission is not. So first, biblical submission does not give men authority over women in general. Paul is very clear in both verses 22 and 24 that women are called, are not called to submit to every man, but only to their own husbands. Second, biblical submission does not imply inferiority. Both men and women are created in the image of God with equal dignity and worth. There is a natural ordering of creation where the man is generally physically stronger and able to protect and provide for his wife. And there is a priority given in the teaching ministry to men. But both men and women are equally intelligent and capable of understanding God's word for themselves. So biblical submission does not imply any inferiority on the part of the wife, but rather biblical submission is a voluntary yielding to the divinely established order. And when it is done, this actually brings greater dignity both uh, to the husband and to the wife, both to the stronger and to the weaker vessels. Third, Biblical submission does not imply that every marriage is going to look exactly the same. There are a range of personalities that come together in marriage, and what godly submission looks like in one marriage might not be exactly how it looks in another marriage. There are also cultural expectations which vary from culture to culture and from marriage to marriage. And so biblical submission once again, is generally the attitude of having a willingness to yield for the sake of the marriage. At the same time, a husband may also lovingly and voluntarily yield to his wife. Fourth, biblical submission does not imply that the wife must be silent and passive. It does not imply that you can't have your own thoughts and ideas and even seek to persuade your husband In fact, it is one of your duties as a helper to your husband to help him to come to the right decision by thinking it through with him. In Proverbs 31, verse 26, it is said of the excellent wife, she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. And a wise husband will value his wife's opinions and not want to be divided when it comes to any given decision. However, once all is said and done, a wife must lovingly submit to the direction that the husband decides to lead. However, that being said, fifth, biblical submission does not demand absolute submission. For example, to take an example from the civil sphere, we are all called to submit to the governing authorities. Romans 13, 1-5 says this, Let every soul be subject, Uh, that's that word, submitted. Let every word be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except by God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject. There's that word. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. So we see that in the civil sphere, as with marriage, there is a general command for submission to the civil authorities as part of the divinely established order that has been put in place by God. Yet we also see in the scripture that when the Jewish leaders commanded uh, the Jews to act contrary to God, they said we ought to obey God rather than men. And so biblical submission never requires that you sin against your own conscience. If your husband tells you to sin or if he tells you to do something that you know is wrong, it becomes your duty indeed not to submit to him. Just as in the civil sphere, there is a biblical requirement for civil disobedience when the state tries to use its authority to cause you to sin and becomes tyrannical. Thus we read, Pharaoh commanded the midwives to kill the male children and yet we read in Exodus 1.17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Sixth, and finally, biblical submission never condones or justifies oppression. Biblical submission does not give the husband the right to be a tyrant any more than it does the state and in fact, there are two biblical grounds for divorce. The first is sexual immorality from Matthew 19, verse 9. And the second is desertion from 1 Corinthians 7. And within our own denomination, we have recognized that any abuse which makes the home inhospitable is a form of desertion and thus can be a legitimate grounds for divorce. So biblical submission must never be a cover-up for a husband to abuse his wife. Well, so much then for the command itself. But next, Paul is going to support this command for wives to submit to their husbands with an argument. And we see as we look at the form of the argument that it is an argument from analogy which is an argument in which perceived similarities imply future similarities. So Paul begins by asserting the known similarity in verse 23. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. In other words, both the relationship of husband and wife and the relationship between Christ and his church Involve the similarity of the idea of headship. And then he concludes that because of this one similarity of headship, therefore we can expect a similarity with regard to submission. Verse 24, therefore, 
Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject, or sorry, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, logically, this only follows if uh, submission is part of the essence of what it means to be under someone's headship. And therefore, you might say that this argument is circular, that Paul is assuming here what he is setting out to prove. However, really, we should not think of this so much as a logical proof as much as a method of persuasion. Paul has the authority to assert that wives should submit to their husbands, but what he wants to do here is to show you that it is a perfectly reasonable assertion and actually one that should already make sense to you since it is similar to the way that the church submits to Christ as her head. So we see that Paul bases his whole uh, rhetorical argument on this idea of headship. And most likely the metaphor of headship comes from the idea of uh, the human body. The head is that which is chief or highest and which directs the movement of the whole body. The hands and the feet don't tell the head what to do, but rather the head tells the hands and the feet what to do. And this is exactly what Paul means when he says in verse 23 that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the one who has authority over the church. So headship connotes authority. And if you say, isn't that Assuming what Paul was setting out to prove, then I would say to you again, Paul isn't proving, he's persuading. But Paul adds another similarity immediately after. Paul says, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And then he adds, And he is the Savior of the body. It's really grammatically ambiguous who Paul is talking about here, whether Paul is uh, talking about Christ being the savior of the body of the church or whether he's talking about the husband being the savior of the body of his wife. But I think the whole argument necessitates that these things apply to both the husband and to Christ. Now we know how Christ could be called the savior of the church. But what does it mean for the husband to be called the savior of his wife? Well, to answer that question, we need to realize that the word savior is not always used in the sense of spiritual salvation. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his commentary that uh, in 1 Timothy 4.10, the same word savior is used in both of these senses. 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 says that for to this end we both labor labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men especially of those who believe. Well if Jesus is the savior of all men especially those who believe then in what way in what sense is he the savior of those who do not believe? Well, plainly, this must be referring simply to the physical preservation and sustaining of life and health and food and clothing and shelter. And so whichever 
Whichever it is that Paul was immediately referring to, the point is that the husband protects and provides for his wife, and therefore he can be called the lowercase s savior of the body, just as Christ is the uppercase s savior of the church. Now, why does Paul add this particular detail? Well, he does it because the headship of both Christ over his church and the the headship of the husband over his wife is not merely one of exercising authority, but it is one of exercising authority for their protection and provision. In other words, this is not a cold and mechanical headship like a ruler in the ancient world could be said to be the head of that nation. Rather, this is the headship of the head over his own body who loves and nourishes and cherishes his body and seeks to build it up and to make it thrive. And therefore, it's only after Paul reminds you of that fact that he draws to his final conclusion in verse 24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Remember, this is a rhetorical argument, not a logical argument. So what is the rhetorical argument that Paul is making? Why is this an effective argument for the Apostle Paul, even though it's not a logical proof? Well, remember that the logical proof is easy. Paul said it, that settles it. For the logical proof, we could stop simply at verse uh, 22 and 23. But the rhetorical persuasion is much more difficult because submission is a scary thing. Even in the ancient world, it would have been considered somewhat countercultural. We often think uh, that marriage was basically well-ordered and healthy and husbands and wives were basically content with their traditional roles for thousands and thousands of years until feminism came and messed everything up. But consider this description of marriage from John Stott's commentary on Ephesians where uh, he quotes uh, several others. He says, The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run his home, to care for his legitimate children, but he found his pleasure and his companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct and fidelity was completely non-existent. In Rome in Paul's day, the matter was still worse. The degeneracy of Rome was tragic. It is not too much to say that the whole atmosphere of the ancient world was adulterous. The marriage bond was on the way to complete breakdown. In the Roman Empire, a girl was completely under her father's, a wife's, a wife completely under her husband's power. She was his chattel. Her life was one of legal incapacity, which amounted to enslavement. At the same time, he notes there was also a counter-movement which promoted equal rights for females. While different periods and different geographical areas produced differing views, 
As for Ephesus and its environment, the cult of the great mother and the Artemis temple stamped this city more than the others as a bastion and bulwark of women's rights. So into that context, what Paul is describing is truly revolutionary. It is equally far from the view that treated women as property and also from the view that wanted to liberate women from the authority of her husband. In fact, what Paul is giving us is nothing less than a restoration of the original intent of marriage in Genesis 2, but giving it to a redeemed humanity. So Paul here in this rhetorical argument is using the similarity between husband and wife and between Christ and the church in order to show you the beauty of biblical submission. Friends, is it in any way demeaning for the church to submit to Christ's headship? Is it not rather to the glory of the church that we belong to Christ and that we seek to obey him? Or is it in any way oppressive for the church to submit to Christ's headship? Is it not rather the truly liberating thing to be placed under his light yoke, to know and obey God's law and to do his will? Or would anyone say that we would be better off if we resisted Christ's rule over us in the church? Is it not the case? Do we not know that everything that Christ desires us to do is for our own good? Friends, what I want you to see from this rhetorical argument is that submission according to God's design can actually be beautiful and good and right, especially when the husband leads and loves his wife like Christ leads and loves the church. And so I want to speak now to the unmarried women and say, be very careful who you choose to marry. Who will be a reflection of Christ? Who can you trust to lead you in a way that looks out for your own good and not his own good? Who are you going to be willing to submit to as Christ calls you to? I think in many ways we have no idea how much influence a spouse will have over the course of your life. I recently heard of a husband who left the Reformed Church for the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I knew his wife had been raised uh, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, and I wondered how she would handle it. And I was shocked to find that she was fully on board with her husband's change of convictions. And yet, if she had never married him, humanly speaking, she would not be Eastern Orthodox. Friends, marry someone who you trust to lead you spiritually. But what if you marry someone who is not a Christian or turned out not to be a Christian? Well, the Bible's advice is going to be the same, but it's going to be a lot harder for you. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 2, Peter says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste 
conduct accompanied by fear. And what if you are older and married or a widow? Paul says in the letter to Titus that the older women are to encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. That's the word submissive, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Well, why all of this? Why does the Bible speak so much of a wife's submission to her husband? Well, one reason is that marriage is the most foundational relationship and it sets the tone for every other relationship and especially the relationship between parents and the children. Sinclair Ferguson said that the relationship between a wife and her husband should be such that your children can point to it and say, do you want to understand what it means to be a Christian? It means to look at Jesus Christ the way my mommy looks at my daddy. As we conclude, I want to leave you with one final thought. I wonder if as a woman you've ever thought in marriage, why does the husband get to be the picture of Christ as the head and savior, but the wife only gets to be a picture of the church as the one who submits and yields? Friends, the answer is that in scripture, Christ is also the one who submits and yields. 1 Corinthians 11.3 tells us, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. And so we see that uh, the man also yields. The head of woman is man. The man yields. And the head of Christ is God. Christ, according to his human nature, according to his role as the Messiah and the Redeemer of God's elect, also yields as our redeemer christ took on human flesh so that he contained in himself both a human and a divine will and we see that christ submitted his human will perfectly his entire life to his head according to his human nature even to the point of death he said in luke 22 verse 42 not my will but yours be done. And no husband is going to ask their wife uh, to die for them. And yet Christ yielded his submission even to the point of death. Therefore Christ models for us both perfect submission in his relationship to the Father and also perfect leadership in his relation to the church, and may our marriages increasingly reflect the image of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we bless you because uh, you are uh, the one who is wisdom. You are the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. You know what is good for us, and Uh, You know what is good in marriage. Lord, we pray that you would give us all humble hearts to submit, uh, not only to our husbands, but as to the Lord, knowing that you indeed command these very things and that uh, what you command is for 
our good. And we ask for your blessing upon us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.